You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network. I'm your host, Bryce Bigham, Director of Media and Communications at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry. It's our goal to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. Well, today on the show, we're going to listen in on a talk from Dr. Tom Hicks on the subject of Richard Baxter and justification, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, the Weekly Discourse is brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary providing affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. In addition to being accessible and confessional, we also strongly believe theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. So our students pay a base of $75 tuition per credit hour and a $350 semester fee. And if you haven't heard about the Church Partnership Program, we're really excited for the opportunity to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world. Uh, If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for the seminary, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. In addition to this, any member of your church can audit our courses at no cost to them. Uh, So to learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You've probably heard the name of Richard Baxter. His works, The Christian Directory and The Reformed Pastor, are very popular. Uh, But did you know that Richard Baxter rejected the Reformed Doctrine of Justification by Faith Alone? Did you know that he rejected the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer for his justification? Did you know that he taught that your final justification is based upon your works? According to J.I. Packer, Baxter actually sowed the seeds of moralism with regard to sin, Arianism with regard to Christ, legalism with regard to faith and salvation, and liberalism with regards to God. Quite serious. And Benjamin Keach joined other notable theologians, such as John Owen, in writing against Baxter's views of justification in his work, The Marrow of True Justification, or Justification Without Works. Keach said, I am afraid many good Christians are not sensible of the sad danger they are in. I cannot see but that the doctrine some men strive to promote is little better than popery and new dress. Nay, one of the worst branches of it, too. Shall any who pretend to be true preachers of the gospel go about to mix their own works of their sincere obedience with Christ's righteousness? Nay, to put their obedience in the room and place of Christ's obedience as that in which they trust and desire to be found? We were recently joined by Dr. Tom Hicks for our 2020 fall modular course on the life and theology of Benjamin Keach. In the midst of this course, Dr. Hicks lectured on the theology of Richard Baxter and the response of Benjamin Keach. And in the following lecture, he outlines the doctrine of Richard Baxter and answers questions such as, should we read Richard Baxter? And how can we recognize versions of Baxter's views today? So let's join Dr. Hicks now for this week's discourse. Well, in this lecture, we will be considering some of the views of Richard Baxter because of the connection between Baxter and Keech. Particularly, we'll be looking at 
Richard Baxter's doctrine of covenant and justification and the relation between those things. Even though Keach was involved in many controversies in his ministry, as you're well aware, uh, he considered his controversy with Baxter on the doctrine of justification his most important one because it was was so directly related to the gospel itself. Keach clearly affirmed the Reformed Orthodox view of justification, but Richard Baxter understood the Reformed doctrine clearly. Richard Baxter knew what the Reformed doctrine of justification was, and he he rejected it, moving back in the direction of uh, some versions of Arminianism and back into Roman Catholicism. Baxter's position has often been referred to as a halfway house between Calvinism and Arminianism. And what we'll see in studying Baxter is that his chief mistake in his doctrine of the covenants and justification was a mistake in understanding the law of God, which means his mistake was a misunderstanding of, of the covenants as well. James Buchanan wisely wrote this, It may be safely affirmed that almost all the errors which have prevailed on the subject of justification may be traced ultimately to erroneous or defective views of the law and justice of God. So when we study Keech's views on covenant and justification, we'll see that Keech argues directly against Baxterianism. He unfolds his doctrine, not just positively from the Bible, but polemically over and against the Baxterian error. Uh, In Keech's day, this error was called neonomianism or new lawism, because what Richard Baxter taught is that believers must keep a new law in order to be justified. So after we consider Baxter's teaching in this lesson, we'll be in a position better to understand how Keach argues. First, though, let me give you just a little bit of background on Richard Baxter biographically. Baxter was born in Roten in Shropshire, England in 1615, November the 12th, 1615. He was raised in an Anglican home, and he did not have a very good education when he was young. And when he grew up into a young man, as he continued to grow, he he started educating himself. He was reading many different books. He he even developed a facility for the biblical languages and eventually became expert in the biblical languages. He had a brilliant mind, but he was never formally educated. In 1638, Baxter was ordained as a clergy in the Anglican Church. That means he was 23 years old, ordained clergy. And just four years later, the English Civil War broke out in 1642. And so what Baxter did was he left his pastoral position in Kidderminster and he became a chaplain in the army until 1646. And during Baxter's chaplaincy, he preached once every Sunday to the soldiers and to the townspeople. And as he served as a chaplain in the army, he began to notice horrific lawlessness among the soldiers. Antinomianism was rampant, licentiousness, immorality of all kinds. He was even more horrified, though, that the soldiers were justifying their antinomianism uh, by appealing to the doctrine of justification. They said, I have Christ's righteousness. I don't need to be righteous. I'm justified by faith alone. I trust in Jesus. Why do I need holiness? 
They, they believe they didn't need to repent or live holy lives. They're safe in Christ's righteousness. And through this experience and his own independent study of the scriptures, and he read lots of different things, and I mean he wasn't formally trained, he was convinced that the root of antinomianism is the doctrine of justification. And he believed that was a reason for the soldiers' licentious living. And because of his experience in the army, Baxter resolved to take up his pen against antinomianism and to write against what he believed to be the unbiblical teaching of justification by faith alone on the ground of Christ's righteousness. So with that biographical background, let's consider now Baxter's doctrine of the covenants and his doctrine of justification. First, consider his doctrine of the covenants. Baxter taught that God entered into a covenant of works with Adam in the Garden of Eden. This covenant required Adam to obey God's law perfectly in order to have life. And it threatened those who failed to obey it with death. So if Adam broke the law just once, there was no possibility of forgiveness in that covenant. There was no redemption in that covenant. The covenant was broken and uh, Adam would have had the curse of eternal death. And in his work, Aphorisms of Justification, written in 1649, Baxter said this, The first covenant made with Adam did promise life upon condition of perfect obedience and threatened death upon the least disobedience. So Baxter taught that Adam was a representative head of all creation. If Adam obeyed, creation would be blessed. But if Adam sinned, the creation would be cursed. Of course, Adam failed to meet this condition of perfect obedience in the covenant of works. And so God cursed Adam and Eve and all of their posterity, descending from them by natural generation and all of creation with death. So far, everything's orthodox. This is orthodox. The Second London Confession, chapter 20, verse 1, says the covenant of works being broken by sin and is made unprofitable unto life. The problems come when we start to consider what Baxter believed the solution was for the broken covenant of works. In Orthodox Reformed theology, the solution to the broken covenant of works is Christ. Jesus did what Adam failed to do, that Christ entered into an eternal covenant of redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, about the redemption of the elect, of the elect and that Jesus would fulfill the terms of this covenant in his earthly life, meriting the blessing of the law and paying the penalty of the law. But Baxter had a different solution. What Baxter taught is that God in his great mercy determined to make a new covenant with a new law for Adam and Eve and all of their posterity. Baxter wrote this. One, man, having not only broken this first covenant, but disabled himself to perform his conditions for the future and being so out of all hope of attaining righteousness and life thereby, two, it pleased the Father and the Mediator to prescribe unto him a new law. This is where we get the term neonomianism. It's right out of Richard Baxter himself, a new law. Three, and tender him a new covenant. For the conditions whereof should be more easy to the sinner and yet more abasing. So here's what that means. Since Adam and Eve could not obey the strict terms of the covenant of works, God graciously made a new law which would be easier for sinners to keep. 
So understand the logic. If, if the strict law of obedience is impossible to obey, and it would be for sinners, then God would be harsh to impose that law again upon them. It would be wrong for God to leave them in that state. It would not be merciful or gracious. But since God is not harsh but is gracious, He mercifully created a whole new law. And this new law is one that sinful Adam and Eve will be able to keep. Baxter was clear that the new law only required an imperfect pattern of faith and repentance for eternal life and for justification. As long as you repent and you believe and you do your best and obey the Lord, then you're keeping the terms of the covenant of grace and you will have eternal life. In a sense, a sinner can keep this new law perfectly because all the law itself requires is imperfect obedience, imperfect best efforts, penitential efforts, faithful efforts, those sin-laden efforts. It's still perfect because that's all the law requires. Baxter wrote this, just to be clear, the gospel, that's, this is the new covenant, the second covenant that God made with Adam, the gospel threatens not death to any sin, but final unbelief and rebellion. The only way to break the new covenant is to finally disbelieve and rebel. So you can only be condemned by the new gospel for final unbelief, final rebellion. Moments of unbelief do not violate God's law. You have a moment of unbelief, that's not any sin against the new law. Individual sins do not break the new law. They do break the old one. They don't break the new one. So if you lose your temper and unbelief, you have not broken the new law as long as you repent and you renew your obedience. So, so think about one implication of this line of thinking. If individual sins and unbelief don't break the new law, then you do not need to be forgiven for your individual sins and unbelief on the new law. You do in terms of the old law, which is, by the way, still in effect. These are going in tandem. You see? So you have a, if you have a soft and flexible law, then the category of forgiveness doesn't make sense. And that's the new law, according to Baxter. So now let's cons- that's his, his doctrine of the covenant of grace. But now let's consider his understanding of the covenant of redemption. Uh, in the classical sense, in historic Reformed theology, the covenant of redemption is an eternal arrangement among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit about the redemption of the elect. This covenant was established among the persons of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. The Father appoints Christ to redeem the elect. Christ agrees to go to fulfill the law of God, to pave the law's penalty, and the Spirit agreed to indwell Christ as He discharged His duties in this covenant. So the Second London Baptist Confession has a very good statement on this. Um, This is chapter 8, paragraph 1, on the covenant of redemption. The words covenant of redemption are not used, but here's what it does say. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed 
and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So that's the historic, reformed, and confessional view of the covenant of redemption. But Baxter didn't believe there is a covenant of redemption. He just rejected the category completely. He, he said that what's commonly called the covenant of redemption is really just God's decree to redeem. There's no covenant. God eternally decreed to send Christ in the world to die on the cross, but there's no covenant of redemption, according to Baxter. So we've looked at his understanding of the covenant of works, his understanding of the covenant of grace, and of the covenant of redemption. But to understand the role of Christ and his work in Baxter's system, you need to understand something. The death of Jesus according to Baxter, was not legally necessary. According to Baxter, Jesus did not have to die for our sins for God to forgive us. He did not have to fulfill all righteousness for God to give us the right to eternal life. How can that be? Well, Baxter taught that because God is sovereign, he has the right to cancel his own law. He made a law. It's his law. And so by kingly fiat, by a simple decree, he can rescind that law, and no one has the right to challenge him. Christ's death for sin is simply not necessary. In Baxter's confession, he wrote, when threatenings are merely parts of the law, then they may be dispensed with without any breach of truth. Louis Burkhoff writes to explain this view. He says, so Sinus also denied the necessity of the atonement. He removed the foundation pillar for such a necessity by the denial of such justice in God as required absolutely and inexorably that sin be punished. For him, the justice of God meant only his moral equity and rectitude by virtue of which there is no depravity or iniquity in any of his works. Hugo Grotius followed his denial on the basis of the consideration that the law of God was a positive enactment of his will, which he could relax, and that's a key, key word, the relaxation of the law, and could also set aside altogether. The Arminians shared views on this point. One and all denied that it was necessary for God to proceed in a judicial way in the manifestation of his grace and maintain that he might have forgiven sin without demanding satisfaction. So Baxter teaches that Christ did not have to die for your sin for your sin to be forgiven. God has a right just to cancel your debt. Now that's contrary to the Second London Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 5, which says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect and obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation and purchased. Baxter would not have agreed with what the confession means by procured and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. So on Baxter's system, then why did Christ have to die? If he did die and he didn't have to die, why, why did God send him to die at all? God could just cancel the debt by fiat. Why send Jesus to die? Well, in Baxter's confession, he argued that it was fitting 
for Christ to die for our sins because, and I'm quoting Baxter here, if God should relax his law, much more if he should wholly dispense with it by remission, the law would seem to lose much of its authority and the lawgiver would be esteemed mutable. So what Baxter is saying is that Christ died for sinners because if God simply canceled our debts by fiat without the sacrifice of Jesus, it would make God look soft on sin. This is just the governmental theory of the atonement. It's that Jesus came to die so that God wouldn't appear as though he doesn't care about sins. It shows how seriously he takes sin. Baxter wrote this, It would have encouraged men to sin and condemn the law if the very first breach of, of it and all others should be merely remitted. But when men see that God has punished his son when he was our surety, they may easily gather that he will not spare them if they continue rebels. Alan Kearns writes this in his Dictionary of Theological Terms about the governmental theory. He says, The death of Christ did not make a real atonement. It paid only a nominal equivalent of sin's penalty, which God was pleased to accept as such. The only real reason for the death of Christ was to reveal God's displeasure against sin, that God, the moral ruler of the universe, might be able to maintain his moral government. The governmental theory was first advocated by Grotius and later taken up by others. So this, of course, explains how Baxter affirmed a universal atonement as well. He did not believe in particular redemption. He, it was a universal atonement because Christ died to show this government of God, God's displeasure against sin to all men. Baxter wrote this, Christ died equally for all men in the foresaid law sense as he satisfied the offended legislator. Notice he didn't satisfy the law. Christ died to offend the offended legislator as giving himself to all alike in the conditional covenant. So, so far we've seen two aspects of Baxter's theology that are closely related. We've seen his doctrine of the covenants and his doctrine of Christ. Now I'd like us to turn to Baxter's doctrine of justification. In the classical Reformed doctrine of justification, we are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which he performed according to his human nature, and we receive him and his righteousness by faith alone. Second London Confession 11.1 says, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely, freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them. That's really important. Not what Baxter is going to say in a moment. But we confess not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them, not even for faith, not because of anything wrought in you or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself as the, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but 
by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is a gift of God. So <clears throat> for the Reformed Orthodox, there's three main parts of justification. And I want to Go through it briefly again in the reform view, in the biblical reform perspective, but then show you how this applies to how Baxter views these as well. First, you have the, the ground. Second, the means. And third, the verdict, the legal declaration. So three parts. First, the ground of justification. Biblically, an orthodox theology is the imputed righteousness of Christ. When we say imputed righteousness, we really intend both the active and passive obedience of Jesus. So the blood of Christ is his righteousness as much as his obedience, all of it together. And so his suffering uh, and his obedience. That's the ground of our justification, to fulfill the law. Second, the means of justification is faith alone. This is often called the instrument. So faith does not cause our justification. Faith is not the ground of our justification. It's nothing more than a receiving organ which rests upon Christ and his righteousness for justification. Faith has been called an, an open mouth or an empty hand. Now, the same faith that is passive Orthodox theology teaches is at the same time active, but it's passive in respect to justification, even while it contains active energy within it uh, when we are justified. But it's the passive aspect by which we are justified. So that's the second thing, the means. Third, the verdict of justification. Now, this is getting at the meaning of the term justify. The, just the lexical meaning of justify can come in different contexts in the Bible and refer to different things, actually. Uh, but, but if we're talking about the whole biblical doctrine of justification, you have to have all three of these parts, but the, just the bare meaning of justify or justification has to do with a verdict, a legal verdict of God the judge, that we're united to Christ and his righteousness. We receive his righteousness by faith alone, and God the judge declares us not guilty and righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. So that's the orthodox view. But Baxter rejected all of that. Let's consider the three parts of justification in Baxter's theology. So what is the ground? First, the ground in Baxter's theology. Well, he rejected imputation. He absolutely rejected the imputation of Christ's righteousness. In his work, A Treatise of Justifying Righteousness, he said, it is an adding to God's word and covenant to say that Adam's innocence or sin should be reputed theirs. So first he's rejecting Adam's imputation, the imputation of Adam's sin. In his confession of his faith, he wrote, the judge of the world will not justify the unrighteous merely because another is righteous. So he's rejecting the imputation of Christ's righteousness as well. He didn't believe it would be just for God to treat people as righteous on the ground of Christ's substitute righteousness. Rather, Baxter taught this. He said, The obeying of a law and performing the conditions of a covenant or satisfying for disobedience or non-performance is our righteousness in reference to that law and covenant. He believed that of all covenants. You can't have a substitute if you're in a covenant. 
It's, you have to obey the terms of that covenant. So what's the ground on Baxter's view? It's your own personal obedience to the new law covenant. Second, what is the means? It's not faith alone. Baxter wrote in, the, in Aphorisms of Justification, he said, faith alone does not justify in opposition to the works of the gospel. But these works do also justify as the secondary, less principal parts of the condition of the covenant. So faith is primary, but the works of faith are secondary, less principal, justifying works. So what about passages like Romans 3.28, where Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What does Baxter say to that? Well, he explains that passage and says, The apostle does professedly exclude works of the law only from justification, but never at all works of the gospel, as they are the condition of the new covenant. So Baxter is limiting the phrase works of the law as works done in obedience to the covenant of works. But he insists that works of the gospel are not excluded by this verse. So that means we're justified in Baxter view by faith in all other evangelical obedience. But of course, the classical uh, Reformed understanding of this passage is that God justifies us by faith and not by or because any works done by us. I want to quote to you John Calvin. He said, this contrast between faith and works, and he's talking about this text that we just cited, ought to be carefully noticed. Works here are mentioned without any limitation, even works universally. Then he neither speaks of ceremonies only nor specifically of any external work, but includes the merit of works, which includes all the merits of works which can possibly be imagined. He also wrote that some interpreters indeed allow that man is justified by faith, but not by faith alone. Yea, they place the efficacy of justification in love, though in words they ascribe it to faith. But Paul affirms in this passage that justification is so gratuitous that he makes it quite evident that it can by no means be associated with the merit of works. So here Calvin's even denying love is a part of, is a means of your justification. So that's the means in Baxter. He denies, he denies a means. There's only ground. You have to believe and obey. That's the, the, the ground is the means for Baxter. Third, what about the verdict of justification, the pronouncement itself? Well, Baxter said, if we are called holy because of an imperfect holiness, then why not righteous because of an imperfect righteousness? Called Holy. So God pronounces you sanctified. He says you're sanctified. You're saints after all, but you're imperfect. Well, so why wouldn't he also call you justified for an imperfect righteousness? That's his argument. So here we see the verdict of justification is not declared on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience in our place. Rather, the verdict of justification is declared on the basis of our own imperfect righteousness. Now, according to Baxter, there's two main verdicts. There's a verdict of justification when you first believe, and then there's a final justification on judgment day. So when God opens the books on the last day and he judges you, that's final justification, and that's really what justification is. That's the real justification on the last day. 
Now, in Reformed theology, Reformed theologians have used different language to describe the last day verdict. Uh, They believe, though, that justification is different from the verdict on Judgment Day. It's not the same thing. Reformed theology held that justification by faith alone on the ground of Christ's righteousness constitutes you righteous before God. But God's judicial verdict on the last day is what demonstrates that you are righteous or just before God. Now, I want to mention one other feature of Baxter's doctrine of justification, and it's that he taught that a Christian's obedience is necessary for him to remain justified. Baxter wrote this, Sincere obedience to God in Christ is a condition of our continuance in a state of justification or of our not losing it. And our perseverance therein is a condition of our appearing in that state before the Lord at our departure hence. So what he's saying is that you can become justified. You're justified, according to Baxter, at your baptism. And then you continue in covenantal faithfulness, faith and repentance and imperfect works of obedience to this new and easy law. And that if you then sin finally and impenitently against the new law of the new covenant, you can then fall out of this covenant and lose your justified status and go to hell. Baxter also wrote, As to the question, therefore, whether justification be losable and pardon reversible, I will answer that the grant of them in the covenant is unalterable. The grant is unalterable, but man's will in itself is mutable. And if he should cease believing by apostasy and the condition fail, he would lose his right and be unjustified and unpardoned without any change in God. But that a man does not do so de facto is to be ascribed to election and special grace. So follow this. Baxter believed that you could be baptized and justified, but not elect. So anyone even in this room who's a believer, who's truly justified, believing in the Lord Jesus, you might not be elect. And if you are not elect, you will eventually turn from Christ and lose your justification. But if you are elect, you'll keep your justification to the end. This was Richard Baxter's position. God does not pres- uh, grant the non-elect persevering grace. He only grants the elect persevering grace. So there we have a general overview of Baxter's covenant theology and his doctrine of justification. Um, in light of Baxter's teaching, after discovering it myself in the PhD program and reading widely in his works, and even studying the Reformed pastor and the Christian directory, I don't believe you can extricate his false teaching from these works. It's, it's deep in them. I believe anything can be used with profit. You know, I mean, I'm not telling you not to read something, but I am saying we have better things. We really do. If you want works on pastoral theology, come see me. I can recommend you better things than the Reformed pastor. If you want uh, better works on ethics, I can recommend you things better than the Christian directory. Uh, His his theology is being worked out practically, and it's manifestly there. Um, 
Again, I think these things can be used with discernment, uh, but I would say they must be used with discernment. In closing, I want to try to give you some applications from this lesson. First, remember that Baxter was not a formally trained theologian. I've often wondered if his lack of formal training contributed to his errors. You are very blessed to be in an institution where your ideas can be challenged by other people, where you can develop your thinking in connection with other Christians who have thought about things. My experience is that sometimes when men don't attend seminary, I don't think it's a requirement to attend seminary, but sometimes when men don't, they develop their thinking in isolation. They only read the books that they want to read or would choose to read on their own, and they come up sometimes with eclectic ideas that are often inferior to the theological giants that have come before them. Baxter was truly an an anomaly. No one believed quite the concocktail of theology that he held until he appeared. He was very, very unique. And so I think Richard Baxter is actually an advertisement for seminary training. A second thing I would mention is that pastoral ministry, in pastoral ministry, you may, may run into versions of Richard Baxter's views. Uh, I've never met anyone today who's claimed to be a Baxterian, but I have had a number of church members who have been influenced by N.T. Wright's version of the New Perspective on Paul, by Norman Shepard and his descendants in the Federal Vision. Some have been influenced by Daniel P. Fuller, who is a Baptist version of this, who influenced John Piper. John Piper's not off on this, but he was influenced by a man who was. I've known several young men who have denied justification by faith alone uh, based on these views, and they have gone into great error. If you'd like a wonderful treatment Of these more modern views, I recommend uh, our own Dr. Waldron's book, Faith, Obedience, and Justification, which is available at Reformed Baptist Academic Press. If you do not own that book, you need to buy that book and read it. It's excellent. A third practical application is to warn you against all forms of legalism in your ministry. Let me never, let me urge you, never preach or teach or lead in such a way that you even imply that people have to work for God's favor and acceptance and love and justification. Don't imply that people's relationships with Christ depends on their personal obedience. This has disastrous effects. The two main effects of legalism in people are pride and depression. If people really think they can do good works for God's acceptance, it will make them very, very proud But if they have tender consciences, they'll feel like God can never accept them, will never accept them. And they'll sink into great despair. So carefully avoid legalism. You you do that by having a clear doctrine of justification along with adoption, all the indicatives and the promises of God in the gospel. A fourth practical application is that justification by works has disastrous theological effects. First, it undermines assurance of salvation. It changes the doctrine of assurance. Without a free and gracious justification, there can be no free and gracious assurance. It robs the saints of consolation before God. Without the Reformed doctrine of justification, you cannot have the Reformed doctrine of assurance. 
They're absolutely tied together. Second, justification by works undermines the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. Jesus doesn't really save you. You have to save yourself with Christ's help. And third, justification by works, most grievously of all, robs God of His glory. If your works are the ground of your righteousness before God, then it means God alone does not get all the glory for your salvation, but rather you make Him share it with yourself. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.